The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Starting in verse 1, we'll just read the first eight verses. This is the Apostle Paul speaking, uh, writing to Timothy. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is God's word. As I mentioned, our sermon series continues through the the classic uh, Christian confession called the Apostles' Creed. We've already covered so much of, of the nature of God and His work uh, of creation, uh, the major principles in the Christian faith, including the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And the next line talks of the theme that has gone by many, many different names and many different sayings. It has been called the end of days. It's been called the final judgment or the apocalypse or the end of the world or the second coming. We're talking about, of course, the coming of Christ. We're talking about the second coming of Christ when he returns to earth. And the creed confesses this. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. And the coming of Christ and his coming of judgment has is almost exclusively been, been seen or referred to or associated with, with fear, with terror. I know, I, I remember the end of days, terror and fear that filled America at Y2K. Many of you did too. You know, the end of the world, it was supposed to end, you know. It, uh, as we were singing Prince's 1999, it was supposed to end right then. And the world would end, right? That's... But it didn't happen. Then there was, you know, Harold Camping, this, this, this man who's predicted Christ's return 11 times. I don't need to tell you, he's, he's 0 for 11, you know. He's like, oh, I got my math wrong. You know, maybe it's, you know, so he, he, he hasn't got it right. Uh, there's the, even the acclaimed uh, physicist, um, Stephen Hawking, has chimed in before he died last year. And he said, we have 100 years left at most before the end of the world. Christian, non-Christian. Uh, the world is growing increasingly in believing that the world's going to end. We don't know how exactly or what's going to happen, but it's going to end. Um, Jesus will return. And what has happened then in our culture is as a result of speculation, as a result of failed predictions by Christians, any time we desire to talk about the end of the world or Jesus' second coming, it makes Christians sound like they're living off of some fear-based conspiracy, and they're dismissed quickly. Like, that's just, that's myth. That's, that's crazy talk. People have been talking crazy like that forever. And it's true that there's much that 
that is so confusing about Jesus' coming in the end times. There's so much discouragement filled in it. Um, but what we don't know when he will or how he will come, but some things we are told we can be certain of. And there is much agreement on the second coming of Christ. Here's just a few things. One, it'll be a, a literal, physical event. He will come bodily. We will see him. We will know him when he comes. We are told to wait for Jesus, and, and Christians are told to wait, and this is an encouraging thing. We're, we're meant to wait uh, and be encouraged by his second coming, coming rather than fearful of it. No one knows when it will be, and no individual, either living or dead, will be able to escape his judgment. That's what we know for sure. There's so much we don't know, but that doesn't mean it won't happen. And when asked about the second coming of Christ and the return of Christ, uh, even R.C. Sproul, the famous Bible teacher, um, said this before he died so profoundly. He said, Jesus will be neither early nor late. <laughs> Profound prediction. I love that. And he's right. <laughs> that we know for certain. And when it comes to Jesus and his work on earth, there is a work that has yet to be done. There's a work that is a future work of Christ, and that is his return. And so we think of his incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, and there's something yet that has to be done. He has to return, and he will return. And he even left the earth with leaving, the, leaving us with a promise that he would. God's word assures us and that he will return. And so here are three characteristics of his second coming helpful for us today. And I don't often do this, but I hope it will be memorable. That his, his second coming is a comfort, it is a confrontation, and it is a conclusion. You like that? See, I can be creative. It, says, it all starts with a letter C. Um, first, a comfort. Let's, start with our, let's actually start where our, our passage actually ends. Paul's been talking to a young pastor uh, Timothy, to encourage him. And after spending the whole letter, uh, writing this whole letter to Timothy and speaking to Timothy, he now turns the conversation to himself for the first time at the end of this letter. And these are words of a dying man. Paul knows that he is about to die and he's about to face Jesus, more importantly. He knows that he's going to come face to face with Christ and face his judgment. And what is front and center of his imagination as he is about to die and face Jesus face to face and, and face his judgment is, is a crown of righteousness that will be his reward. And this is front and center in his mind and in his heart. And, and Paul speaks with such certainty that, that, that a reward awaits him. The judgment of Christ for Paul is not a threat. It is a comfort to him. And he says to Timothy, this comfort is not just for me, but it can be for anyone who loved his appearing. Who loved his appearing. Think of that phrase, all who have loved his appearing. It's more than just mean, meaning for all who believe in Jesus. It reflects a view of Christian living that takes the, the judgment of Christ very seriously, that Jesus will one day return, and one day he will judge those who are alive and those who have since died. Those who love his appearing, the appearing of Jesus, know that Jesus is returning as a judge, and they are ready to face their judgment. How terrifying, you might think. Well, how terrifying to, to know, to be certain that Jesus is coming, and we will stand face to face with Christ, and not a single deed will be hidden from his view. 
and he will judge us, and he is a righteous judge. How can anyone find comfort in such a scenario? Hey, Paul, the judge is about to come, and he is about to read his verdict of your life. And Paul says, oh, he's going to acquit me. He's going to acquit me. And not only will I get an acquittal, he's going to reward me. He is going to reward me with a crown and with a robe and with a gold ring, and he will, he will give me everything that, that he has earned. That's a bit, a bit presumptuous, don't you think? A bit arrogant. Paul was directly involved in the persecution and murdering of Christians. Paul mocked Christ and even called himself the chief of all sinners. It's strange to say that at the end of his life, Paul says, not only will I be acquitted, I will be rewarded. And for Paul, the confidence that he had in facing the judgment of Christ had had nothing to do with confidence in his own character, but it rested in the confidence that he had in the grace of God that was poured out in him to him because of Jesus. Paul, Paul's comfort in the judgment of Christ rests in certain facts that he believed to be very true and he embraced that Jesus was condemned so that he would be forgiven. That Jesus was cursed on the cross so that he would be blessed. That God is satisfied with Jesus' sacrifice so that Paul would be justified. That Jesus' blood was shed so that he would be made pure. That Jesus is risen so that Paul would be given new life. That Jesus now sits enthroned as king in heaven so that the Holy Spirit would come to Paul and empower him to live a life of faithfulness and faith and obedience to Jesus. You see, Paul believed all these things. He rested in these things. He realized that Jesus was a righteous judge, that his his acquittal would come not from his own character, his own record, but rather God, but Jesus' record, Jesus' character. See, Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead, and this, this will be the best thing that will ever happen to the one who trusts in him. You see, Jesus' coming to judge the living and the dead is the best thing. It's the best news for the person who trusts in him. Jesus will, at that time when he comes, he will, we don't know how, but we are told that when he comes, he will ascend the judgment seat. As a judge would ascend the, the bench to now render his judgment and verdict. And he ascends the judgment seat, not for our condemnation, but he does it for our acquittal. There is no sentencing left to be done because Jesus stood in our place and, he has, and God has served the sentence for our sins, the sentence of death on Christ. You know what double jeopardy is, right? I mean, we know what that is in our, in our, in our legal system. It means that a person cannot stand trial and be prosecuted for the same offense twice. That's what it means. This was God's idea, of course, and it's a good idea. Our sins have fallen on Jesus. Jesus has stood in our place, and God gave to Jesus the punishment we deserved. He rendered the sentencing of death, and Jesus was crucified on the cross. He was dead and buried. He did not survive his own execution. And we cannot stand trial for that offense twice. We cannot be prosecuted for the same offense twice. On the day of our judgment, when Jesus returns, we will be able to see for the very first time, we will see the truth of our lives. 
we will see for the first time the truth of our sin. It will be clearly seen and exposed. And we will see at that time also the true vastness of God's love and mercy for us at that same time. We will see it clearly, what it cost for Jesus to die for us. We will see very clearly what he gave for us to be with him. We will see very clearly the pain and punishment of our sin. Not missteps, not white lies, not things that we should have done differently. We will see how evil our sin was, and then we will see how much Jesus loves us. If you trust in the gospel, then when Jesus comes back, it will be in that moment and not until that moment that you will fully know the depth of God's relentless love and acceptance of you and the length that he has gone to make sure that he completes the work that he has promised in you. And you'll see in that moment all that he has done and how every moment has led up to this moment where you would be with him, fully loved, accepted, and your sins are no more. You know, the book of Revelation, I mean, this is the book of, the book of Revelation, the place where we go, our mind goes at least, when we think about the, the second coming, the apocalypse. We think of uh, the end of the world. And this book, it can be a terrifying book. It's, it's a book of judgment. It's a book of, of, of rendering judgment on the world. <clears throat> it is a time of God's um, settling of accounts and debts that are owed to him. And it can be terrifying. The book of Revelation assumes uh, it is assumed by many to be the scariest book of the Bible. Many don't even study it or read it or even uh, pretend to know what's going on in it because it is so terrifying. But do you know what the second to last verse in the book of Revelation says? The second to last verse in the book of Revelation is, Come Lord Jesus. After everything has been revealed from God to us, the most scariest stuff of judgment and everything that we, all the commands of God, the law of God, the work of Christ, Christians knowing all that God has revealed to us do not say, this is terrifying stuff. But they say, when do you get here? When can you come and judge? When can we come and be with you? You see, after knowing everything there is to know, about God's nature, character, and work in the world, Christians ought to be among the most eager to see his second coming. We should pray for it. We should say, come long expected Jesus. You see, the Christian is not afraid for Jesus to come back. The Christian is not afraid to stand face to face with Christ, for he or she is eager to see him. We are to look to the skies and long for, and long for his waiting. We are to, to have our chin heavenward saying, come, Lord Jesus, come with your judgment. Come with your acquittal. Come with your blessing. Come with your joy. The thought of Jesus as judge should not make the Christian alarmed. The, the thought of Jesus as judge should make the Christian glad. He's coming to judge, and I'm not afraid because my judgment has fallen on him. Of course, Jesus' return not only brings blessing, but Jesus' return also brings condemnation. It brings confrontation. It brings a reckoning. That's the second point, that Jesus' second coming is a confrontation. Our passage and the creed confess that he will come to judge. Jesus will come to judge. Do you know what it means to judge? What's the picture that you have in your mind as a judging Jesus as he comes? The Bible says he comes riding on the horse, a white horse, 
with the angels with him to bring judgment on a cloud. You know, I, I kind of picture Jesus riding on this horse with his hands on his hips, with his, you know, wagging finger ready. You know, you shouldn't have done that. I told you. Now you're all going to pay. You know, what's the picture of your, your judging Jesus? What's the most judgmental or judgy Jesus picture you can have in your mind? It's not going to be like that. I, I doubt. It won't, it won't be like that. That's not what it means to judge. To judge is not to be judgy. To judge means to divide. To judge means to discriminate. To, to judge means to, to separate, to, to sift. A judge is, is one like uh, sifting a, a pan of gold who, who, who digs up from, from the creek dirt, rocks, sediment, and all this stuff, and, and sifts around and circulates the pan until all the bad stuff comes out, and what's left is, is the gold, golden nuggets. Jesus talks about the work of judgment when he returns in many metaphors in Scripture. He talks about it in separating the goats from the sheep. He says the goats and the sheep will, will exist together for a long time. They will exist together, both wickedness and, uh, and, and goodness and holiness. And God's people uh, and, and, and the enemies of God's people will exist together. And one day God will come to judge. He will divide once and for all. And we will know who the sheep are we will know who the goats are. He talks about in the, in the way of the, the weeds and the, and the wheat. He says allow, he allows the wheat and the weeds to grow together in the same field. Sometimes unrecognizable. We don't know uh, who truly belong to Jesus, and we don't know who are enemies of, of Christ. And they grow together, but one day he will come back, and he will bind the wheat, and he will, get, he will gather the wheat into his barn and the, the weeds he will gather together and throw into the fire to be burned. This is the work of a judge. Only Jesus is qualified. Only Jesus is righteous enough. Only Jesus is true enough and just enough in order to judge truthfully. We can't do that. We don't know all. We are not almighty. But Jesus, as a one who comes to judge, he, is, he comes to discern. He comes to discriminate. He comes to separate. Listen, even when speaking of confrontation and Jesus' second coming as a confrontation, it is, it is good news. Because by being good, by being a good and righteous judge and exposing sin and separating evil from good, Jesus is pulling our souls towards him. By Jesus coming to judge, and if we think that, what does he know then about me? And he says, I know everything about you. And one day your, your sins will be, will be made known to all. And they will be they will be seen clearly. And that might bring shame, but he's saying, this is good news that I come to discriminate. This is good news that I come to point out. It's good news that I come and expose your sin because I, I'm doing that to pull you towards me, to give you an opportunity to repent, to give you an opportunity to confess and to look to me. So you see, his judgment is, his impending judgment is an invitation to us. One day it will be too late. When he returns, it will be too late to repent. But for now, as we think of his judgment, that Jesus is coming, and I will not be able to hide my sin any longer. This is good news. It's an invitation. It's an invitation. He's pulling you closer to him right now. If you are thinking of his judgment, and you're thinking of your record, and your character, and your sin, and it brings great shame, and guilt, and embarrassment, and fear, this is a gift. Those feelings are a gift. Not to, not to let you stay in that place, 
Not to leave you in that place, but to pull you towards Jesus, who is righteous and merciful and good. One day, my wife, uh, she comes home, and me and my son are in the front yard, and we're pulling weeds in the front yard, and it's 2 p.m., and it's August. And uh, looking back, I admit, I'll be the first to admit, it might have been a little bit too dangerous for him to do that. Uh, probably, probably we got, got a little close to seeing Jesus there. You know, so but he, he was purple in his face, and, 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 and she comes home. He's close to a stroke, you know, heat stroke. His face is the color of like a red delicious apple. Um, <clears throat> my wife comes home, and she doesn't say anything. She just looks at me, and I know exactly what she's saying. She's, she, what she's saying with her eyes is, you're not going to kill our son, right? Like everything is okay. Like he's safe, and everything's fine. And I say, this is, this is good. Let, let us do this. We need to do this. This is a father-son moment. This is a metaphor. I'm teaching him something. Um, I'm teaching our son about life, and it's a metaphor. I'm teaching him that it's, it's hard to pull weeds, but it's necessary if we want a beautiful yard. Don't worry, honey. Everything is going to be fine. And, and, we did, and it, was, it was, and we pulled the weeds, and then we had a really nice, cold, refreshing drink, and we talked about that. Uh, and I was like, this is, this is a metaphor, honey. It's so, so painful. This is so horrible to be out here, but it's necessary if we want a nice yard. And she's like, well, you could have just called Gary and he could have pulled your weeds. I'm like, <clears throat> Listen, this is, a, that metaphor, this is a very weak metaphor for, for a very, very profound spiritual reality. And, and that is this. God's judgment of our sin, all of our sin, is for our ultimate benefit. Him being a judge and pointing out our lives in all the ways that we fall short, in all the ways that uh, we are deserving of, his death, uh, of, of death and his wrath is for our ultimate benefit. Because listen to this, to fail to turn to Jesus and to remain in our sin will result in our condemnation, eternal condemnation, separation from God. This is true. To turn to him in our sin when we are still able to turn to Christ in trust of the gospel in what he has done for us on our behalf will result in our eternal rescue. Talking about sin is for our ultimate benefit. Talking about how God hates our sin is for our ultimate benefit. Talking about how hard it is to live a life of following Jesus and how easy it is to be tempted and to give in to sin is for our ultimate benefit. Telling you that if we remain in sin and fail to turn to Jesus, we will be in hell forever is for our ultimate benefit. His judgment is good news. His judgment is an invitation for, for all who are willing to hear, for all who are willing to see the goodness that he offers to us. He will come one day and he will, he promises, his word is good. He will divide those who belong to him and those who don't. And those who do, he will gather to be with him. And those who don't belong to him, he will cast into the fire with the devil where there will be relentless torment for all eternity. Do not leave this up to chance. Do not leave this up to a measurement of your good outweighing bad. Do not leave it up. Do not assume that based on your perceived good nature 
or your proximity to the church or being born into a Christian family. Do not leave it up to that. It is a matter of life and death you must be certain about. And the litmus test is this that Paul says. The litmus test. Well, how do we know? And Paul's litmus test is this. And the question for you is, do you turn from the truth or do you turn to the truth? This is what Paul says. There are people who will turn from the truth or there are people who will turn to the truth. This is general, it's, it's broad, it can mean many things, it can be applied to many areas of your life or many teachings of our culture. The question is, are you turning to Christ or are you turning from him? Verse 3 and 4 says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off in the myths. Do not ever believe anyone who says the Bible is irrelevant for today. My goodness. This was written last week. Time's going to come when people are going to be carried off by their passions. They'll look for teachers who fit their needs. They'll resist and suppress the truth because it's hard to hear. And they will, they will create a doctrine for themselves that will suit their own passions. They will turn from God and they will turn to, they will turn from God and they'll turn to their own passions. But turn to Jesus. Turn to what he says, turn to the promises he says, turn to his nature, his character, his hope. We think that people, you see, we, we think that people like non-Christians, people that are enemies of the church or people who don't know Jesus, we think that people... In this passage, or people that go to hell, we think that people turn away from the truth violently. You know, this passage tells us that most, it doesn't happen that way. Most people don't run away from Jesus. Most people don't, don't have this confrontation with Jesus and say, I'm not a Christian because I've learned everything there is to know about it, and I hate him. I hate him still. This says most people don't turn away that way. It says that they, they didn't run away. It doesn't even say that they walked away. It says that they, they wandered away, almost, almost accidentally. We don't even walk away from Jesus. I've heard people say, that they, I've heard people say, quote unquote, he walked away from the truth. He walked away from Jesus. He's not walking with Jesus. No one, no one walks away from the truth. What happens is our affections for something other than Jesus captivates our hearts. Our affection for something other than Jesus captivates our, our longings, and we wander towards those things. We have, a, we have a passion for those things. We wander towards those things, and those things end up promising salvation, and we believe those things to give us the life that we, that we desire, but that they can never deliver. And it happens when we have an itch in our ear. What does that mean? We wander from Jesus due to a subtle desire that becomes full-grown. It doesn't start that way. It never starts full-grown. Paul doesn't say a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but they will have broken ribs and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. If you have a broken rib, you go to a doctor. You say, I cannot ignore this. I am in pain and I need help. That's not how sin works. Sin doesn't punch you in the face and say, you need Jesus, and you say, that's obvious. Sin is like an itch. Sin is a temptation. Sin is a craving, it is a passion, to, and it promises life for you that it cannot deliver on. And so we say, I wonder if that's true. 
Let me try that out. I wonder, that, that sounds right. You know, my friend does that, and they seem to be doing okay. Everyone around me seems to be doing that. People have an itch, and they just kind of scratch at it, and they say, that kind of satisfied. And so the next time they get an itch, they scratch it again, and they say, scratching works. Scratching works when you have an itch. We wander from Jesus when we're tempted with good things. I want to feel loved. Jesus has given me a desire to feel loved. And instead of listening to what God says about the wisdom in relationships and enduring with patience he, for the plans that he, that he will unfold for me, I want to scratch that itch. I want to circumvent his wisdom. I want to follow my passions. We say I want to be independent. Instead of trusting in what God says our lives about our lives that we belong to him and belong to one another, we listen to people who fuel our desire that says, you don't need to answer to anyone. You don't need to listen to anyone. You're your own person. We scratch that itch, and we say, yeah, I am my own person. No one can tell me what to do. We scratch that itch of security by pouring our lives into work and making money for position and identity rather than, being, rather than seeing all that we have as, as gifts to steward. We find our identity in our things that we accumulate, and so we become workaholics. We pour ourselves into our work because we feel we find honor and esteem from our coworkers and bosses for jobs well done. We crave that. We, we scratch that itch and we keep coming back to it. When Jesus says, I, you, your identity is in, is in everything I've done for you. You are accepted, not because you are good. You are loved, not because you, are, because you have done something worthy. We scratch the itch of self-worth by basing our identity on how moral we are and how we disdain others and feel superior to people who are not accomplished as us. We say those people should be more like me. Then they will be good. Then they will be worthy. You see, temptation doesn't walk up to us and say, hey, you want to go reject Jesus, live a life of, you know, on our own and wreak havoc on our lives and ruin everything in our lives? Oh, yeah, sure, let's do that. No, no, it doesn't come up like, like sin does not say, do you want to come and ruin your life. Temptation says, does God really know what's best for you? I don't think he knows what's best for you. Sounds like that's a weird thing for God to say if he really wants you to be happy. And we say, oh gosh, there's a lot of wisdom in that. And then we kind of play around, we wander off from the truth. Temptation whispers in our ears and we, and we scratch it. That's what Paul is saying. And Jesus comes to judge, and he comes to divide the truth from a lie. He, do, he comes to divide those whispers of hell. He comes to divide those things. He comes to discriminate. He comes to discriminate and to sift out. And until that day, he's inviting us all to center our lives on him, center our lives on him who, who died for us. And it's only by his sheer grace that we are what we are. His love for us is not based on our record or character, but his performance and his grace. And when Paul says to Timothy, I charge you, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, preach the word. You may not think this has any application to you. Maybe as you're reading this, you thought, well, I don't preach and I'm not a pastor. I'm not in full-time ministry. This is obviously Paul's exhortation to Timothy as a pastor of his church. You're right. This has specific application to Timothy, but it also has general application for all of us. And it is this, there should be no greater itch 
than the desire to find yourself in the smack dab middle of the pleasure of God's will. There should be no audience for who you, you, you live than the audience of God. There should be no opinion that matters most but the opinion of God. There is, should be no advice that you give but the advice of God. There should be no passion that you pursue but the passion of God. And Paul says, center your life on it. Because many people, most people will not want to listen to you. But, be, but preach the word. He says, I charge you, preach the word. There are, are a thousand things that, that, will, that will seek to motivate you for how you live. Within the next 24 hours, you're going to hear so many things from your culture. Tomorrow, you'll hear it. You will be told that you don't have enough life insurance, your teeth are too yellow, your car is too old, your house is too small, your hair is too gray, your shoes are too worn out, you know, your laugh isn't funny enough. I mean, you're going to just watch the commercials in the next 24 hours, and you are going to hear all the things that are wrong with you. And in a world creating itches in our ears, our number one motivation is never, what do we want? what pleases us, what is convenient for us, but rather to bring all of life under the direction and lordship of Jesus, to turn to him rather than turning from him. There's only one audience that matters, and that is Jesus, the righteous judge, because there's only one who will judge us, and it's Jesus. Where are you being confronted today? Where does the impending coming of Christ and righteousness of Christ confront you? Where, what, what, itch, what itches are you scratching? Who are you putting on a platform to follow? What ideas, passions, motivations, dreams, and wishes do you have that do not flow out of God's truth and wisdom to you? Those things need to be repented of. Those things you should be terrified of. Those things you should feel yourself potentially wandering from the truth of God and one day might not, might not find yourself might find yourself far from him altogether but finally finally a conclusion the second coming of christ is for us a conclusion the coming of christ means the end of, of so many things the the finality and conclusion of so many things think about this the end of depression the end of cancer the end of loneliness the end of suffering the end of sinning the end of temptation the end of crying The coming of Christ is good news for those who have been sinned against. It is the end of injustice. Those who have been hurt need a God. If you have ever been hurt and wronged in your life, you need a God who will come and judge those who have wronged you. If we, are, if we desire any hope that the, that the wickedness that we endure today is worth it, we need a God who will come and judge his coming means the end of abuse, the end of abuse of power, the end of manipulation, the end of lies, the end of emotional torment. But on all the ending of these things, his coming is also a beginning. The beginning of perfect communion with Jesus and delight that increases without end. It's the beginning of the joyful end that never ends. Isn't that something? 
His coming is the beginning of the joyful end that never ends. So I ask you one final question. Are you ready to meet Jesus? And that's not, I'm not threatening you. That's not a threat. It's not like, are you ready to meet your maker? <laughs> it's really a question. Sincerity for your heart. Are you ready to meet Jesus? Your greatest need in all the world is to get ready to meet him. Because not a single person will be able to escape his judgment. And you don't know when he will return. He may return today. Come, Lord Jesus. He may return tomorrow. He may return right now. Okay, right now. (laughs) Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. Jesus is telling us that that to have saving faith, we must not merely believe in facts. We must not merely confess in facts, but must completely change our mind about Jesus and our attitude towards sin and receive him. We must repent of sin. We must turn from our sin and turn to Jesus. When Jesus returns, he will not concern himself, I promise, with if you have learned the facts of Christianity. He will not concern himself if you are born in a Christian home or if you've been baptized or even if you've joined a church. Without repentance, these things are pointless. Repentance says something in my life has been more important to Jesus, more important than God. And I have treated these things like my Savior. These things have, have, are my hope and my salvation and my comfort. I admit that I am more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believe. But because of Jesus, I see that I'm more accepted and loved than I ever dared hope. We see that he emptied himself for us, that he died for us, that he rose for us, and that he comes back one day to take us to be with him. And none of these things has happened because of our doing, but because of his. And so we say, Jesus, I'm going to repent of those things. I've cared about those things much more than I've cared about you. And we run into his open arms of grace. And he says, welcome into my joy. I will never leave you. Nothing can separate you from my love. Not even your sin. And so we stand amazed in his judgment. And we stand ready for his judgment. And we say, come Lord Jesus. We are ready.